Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Uh, welcome back. Sorry about last week. Uh, man down. Blackhawk down. I was crook as a dog. Uh, didn't even train. Did nothing from uh, Tuesday right through till Friday. And uh, I did a little bit of filming in between because we're doing the show at the moment. But uh, I had, yeah, the show must go on, so they're not going to stop because of me. But anyway, uh, don't know how effective I was. I'll probably have to reshoot a lot of that stuff. At least the celebrities are doing their best. Um, by the way, not a good time to get a virus because I've got a big fight on in three weeks' time, but uh, yeah, we'll see how that all goes. I haven't told Danny Green yet. Hopefully he's not listening. Well, I hope he's listening to my podcast, but hang on. Okay, Danny, if you're listening to my podcast, I have not been sick, and, mate, I am ready for you. I've been watching that Tarva fight. Hang on. I might take that back because I don't want to upset him because he might punch the soul case out of me. Danny, I hope you're going all right, mate. Okay, he did send me a text. He said um, on Friday night when I was laying in bed, crook as a dog, his text said something like this, uh, uh, mate, the only thing I've got to say to you is I hope you don't mind eating soft food for about three weeks after the 27th of August. So that doesn't sound good. Of course, he's in a camp somewhere getting ready for his big fight in uh, Melbourne on the 19th. Anyway... Uh, make sure you recu- uh, keep keep sending all that stuff into me on YouTube. Uh, sort of been interesting what I've been looking at lately. Uh, some of the stuff I've been looking at is not great, and maybe because uh, a lot of you guys have got such good ideas, you actually don't want to share them on YouTube, which I sort of understand that. So if you feel that way, send it in by email, and um, and we can sort of enter into some sort of NDA or whatever. We can sort of work around it. But I mean, I can't help you or look at things or award the ten thousand dollar prize money if uh, I don't get to see it. Um, and equally, I don't want to be seeing a whole lot of rubbishy things too either because, I mean, like everyone's punting around trying to promote their idea, but unfortunately some of these things that we look at aren't great and uh, I just don't want to waste everyone's time or my time. You know, I'm not here to belt you, but uh, some of those things that are coming through aren't great at all. Uh, last week, last show, we had Kate Dillon from Machine Line Handbags. Uh, she came and pitched me. She was very polished and she had a great product. Of course, uh, we've now introduced her to Emma Isaacs from um, Business Chicks. And let's see whether she and Emma can do some sort of deal. Um, and hopefully Emma might be able to promote the Sheline product. Um, but now that's up to them. I mean, I've given them a leg up. I gave them my advice. That says now it's really up to Sheline to do their own thing. So, but Kate, good luck to you. This week's top five. 
Tuesday, the RBA left interest rates on hold at 2%. Excuse me. The global economy is expanding at a moderate pace. Um, That's largely pushed by the USA um, with no help from China because China's all over the place, no help from Europe. Europe's all over the place. And to be frank, there's not much help from here either. Um, Other parts of Asia Asia are doing quite well, but this is really a US-led recovery. And uh, the US is, you know, making making headway. Of course, the US is sort of threatening to increase the uh, Federal Reserve cash rate, so that hasn't been an rec- increase for many, many years. Um, that that'll be uh, that'll make some big changes to Australia. And obviously, once that process of increases in their local interest rate, that will actually start to increase uh, or decrease our Aussie dollar. <coughs> Excuse me, the Aussie dollar against their dollar, which. You know, that's a good thing from our exporters' point of view and that's something that our Reserve Bank wants to see too. The Reserve Bank made it clear that low interest rates are there to support borrowing and spending, so that seems to have, be having some impact, particularly in the property markets. Um, they did make a comment about Sydney property markets continuing to fly very well. Of course, not everybody's selling their property for $60 million like James Packer did this week, but nonetheless, uh, there are some people are selling their properties for record prices. Melbourne is doing okay, Brisbane... My pick of the place, uh, uh, major cities in Australia for investing at the moment would be Brisbane. Um, not so much in the unit market, but in the housing market. So I think uh, Brisbane's ready for a, a bit of a run. It's um, you know a job, there's lots of jobs up there. Um, house prices have not expanded up there like they have everywhere else in Australia. Investors are starting to look up in that direction. So that's an important place if you're an investor up that way. That's an important place to look for. Um, so, bottom line though is uh, RBA happy with where interest rates are right at the moment. Then they didn't really suggest that they're going to lower interest rates from here. They're just happy to keep them where they are to accommodate um, the, the, all the various factors that they want to see in Australia. That is low inflation, moderate growth. That is up towards a three percent mark if they can get it there, and unemployment to leave it around between six and six point two percent. Okay, there's been a new phenomenon in Australia over the last uh, week or so. Uh, I sort of highlighted this some time ago, uh, but it's now come to fruition. So effectively, this is what's going on. And there's been a lot, of writ- lot written about it, um, but no one's being held accountable as usual. So the big four banks control housing lending, whether it's to investors or to own occupiers in this country. You know, they probably control in excess of a trillion dollars worth of Lending, <clears throat> and on an annual basis, it's probably like two hundred billion a year is lent in new loans for either investors or owner occupiers, owner occupiers, buyers for houses or apartments in Australia. Now, not everybody borrows money when they buy a house in Australia, but you know, largely most people do. So, what the regulator has done is tried to rein in the percentage of lending that's been allocated to investors as opposed to owner-occupiers. And the way they rein that in is they say to the, the big four banks, look, we don't want you to grow faster than a certain rate per annum. So in terms of new investor loans, I'm not going to tell you what the rate is. But I know what it is, but I, I just they have put a limit on them. They say, look, just grow at a nice steady pace. And they've assumed what the steady pace is, just so they can keep... The proportions of investor loans 
at a comfortable level relative to the proportion of owner-occupied loans. And by the way, that's a good thing for owner-occupiers because it helps owner-occupiers pay a more rational price and they're not competing against investors who are just merely going there for a yield. Now, that makes that sounds like good economic policy to me. Um, <clears throat> so that's fine. That's good. So what happens is the lenders, including us, we just play around with our lending criteria to tighten up the criteria. In other words, we make it a little bit harder for an investor to borrow money to buy an investment property based on their credit criteria, which basically means we still lend it, but instead of lending you know, 90% of the value of the property or the purchase price, we limit it, we end up lending a lower amount, 80%. So we do the same number of transactions, we just lend lower amounts. And that, will mean, that means in the end, the total percentage of growth in new lending to investors is lower than, or was in the, within the range that the regulator wants. But what happened last week was this. Invest, uh, big banks are saying, well, you know what? Because we can't lend as much, we're going to have to charge a higher interest rate. Now, you're going to, you're going to say, so, well, how does that work logically? Well, I'll tell you how it works. A lender is interested in one thing and one thing alone. That is the net present value of the loan, which is an asset to them. In other words, how much money is that loan worth to me? I'm the lender. I'm lending you money. How much is that worth that, that worth to me over time, bringing it back today to today's dollars? So the net present value, the most influential part of the net present value calculation is the amount you lend, the principal. So if you're reducing that from, you know, 90% to 80%, you've got to somehow adjust something else in the formula to get your net present value back up to where it was. And the thing you adjust is the margin. So it's pretty simple. Banks are saying, we want to make the same return that we've always made, but we don't want to lend as much because, you know, we've been told by the regulator that we can't lend as much or that the regulator would prefer us to, you know, curtail our lending to investors or manage it. But we still want to make as much money. So what we're going to do is we're going to jam the investors with a higher margin. So most of the banks across the board last week announced that they've, some announced for new lending, they're going to increase their interest rate by 0.27 to 0.3% of a per annum. That's uh, one interest rate reduction you just, just lost. One and a bit interest rate, interest rate reductions that you got from the Reserve Bank last time they reduced rates, you just lost it, just gone. But it hasn't gone anywhere. It's gone straight into the bank's bottom line. And by the way, the person who's paying for it is the borrower. Now, that's okay on new loans because, you know, if, if you're borrowing money and you, you've got your eyes wide open, you say, okay, well, I don't want, you know, you've got an opportunity to say, I don't want to pay that. So therefore, you don't make the investment. You've got a choice. But where I find it pretty tough is where the banks have said, oh, by the way, not only are we going to extend that for new borrowing, we're going to extend it right across the board for all borrowers. Now, that looks like a gouge to me. That looks like a gouge. You know, if you have a massive book of investors on your, on your books, investor borrowers, and you just go ahead and say, I've oh, just increased the interest rate by 0.27 or 0.29 or 0.3 across my whole book, then that looks to me like it's going to deliver a massive big bottom line windfall to you. It looks a bit opportunistic. So my view on that is if, it, if you, the banks, think that this is not opportunistic, 
and that you are mathematically justified in doing this. There are economics are in it. And I think the banks should actually explain their position. I think they should be made to explain why is 0.27 the right number? Why isn't 0.22 the right number? Why isn't, or maybe 0.4 should have been the right number and they've actually done everyone a favour. They should come out and disclose how the calculation's made. Because, you know, it's $23 a month on an average $350,000 loan for the life of the loan. Forever. It's not gonna, you're not going to get it back. They're not going to say, oh, look, we only just did that for a couple months, we're going to give it back to you now. No, 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 it's there forever. And my gut feeling is you're going to get some more of these. And I reckon it won't be before long that you're going to start seeing interest rate margin increases on owner-occupied loans too. And I think what's going to be cited to you as the reasons for this is these, you know, is the the Murray report or the, you know, these you know, these Basel three requirements are coming out of Europe about what how bankers should keep capital against asset classes, some of which is justified, but because it's just one big misty environment. Um, it's nobody really understands. It's not getting. It's not getting challenged by anybody. Nobody's challenging it. Nobody wants to say, "Oh, well, you know, it's the regulator," and it's not the regulator. Actually, the regulator gives the banks a choice. The banks are the ones who decide how much they've got to charge extra. Regulators just saying, "Listen, just control how much, what proportion of your book is in investor investor versus owner occupier." Regulators not telling people how much extra to charge. Regulator doesn't make any of the money out of it. You know, the profit goes straight to the banks. And it'd be interesting to look at, in, you know, in three or six months' time after a couple of quarters have passed, if the banks are lending less, which they will, whether or not their profits reduce, which they probably won't. And again, who's paying for that? Those profits, those profits are being generated by the borrowers. Now, it's, it's you know, like to some people, they're going to say, oh, well, 23 bucks a month doesn't matter. You know, that's like four coffees. No big deal. Um, you know, I, I'm, I can handle that. Yeah, but like if you, it just doesn't look right. It's not fair to me. If you look across the, the whole board of all borrowers, if every borrower said, no way, we're not paying it, the banks couldn't charge it. But of course, no one says anything because it's only $23. So it's easy to pick everyone off, pick people off at 23 bucks a go because it's just a massive gouge. Now, I'm not saying some of that $23 isn't justified. Maybe they, they need to recover $12 because you know, funding might cost them more because they've got to allocate more money across the board to those asset classes. That's fine. But is it really, you know, is it really <clears throat> 27 base points, which is 23 bucks, or is it 29 base points, which is $25, or is it 10 basis points, which is $14 extra month? I mean, ha- we should be working this out together. It shouldn't be just one way. And... Uh, you know, where you've got no say in it. You don't have any opportunity to question it. And when they all do it together, that looks very oligopolistic to me. That's like oligopolistic behaviour. The regulator obviously goes and sees all the banks. All the banks react. They wait and see who does goes first. Oh, they went by 27 base points. We'll go by 27 base points. Um, oh, well, we'll go by 29 base points. So, you know, they're all within the range. So they're actually doing, they're sort of signalling to each other in a funny sort of way, um, not in a uh, wit- not wittingly, or um, they're not doing it like purposefully, but it is a signal because you know you just know if someone announces they're going to go twenty-seven base points, you just announce the same. It's pretty simple, and uh, all of a sudden there's no comp- no more competition because everyone's doing the same thing, and no one can complain because I can't get a better deal if I'm at one bank compared to another bank because it's the same deal. So, where's the stability in that? 
And now, I, I, and that's not APRA's business to look at. That may be for the competition watchdog to look at that, but nobody's looking at this stuff. And it's just slipped through. And what, what sort of makes me, irks me a bit is you've got the Reserve Bank on one hand put it, giving us record low interest rates in order to um, stimulate the economy. But on the other hand, you've got the banks going the opposite direction. So what the Reserve Bank giveth, <laughs> the big four bank taketh. You know, so the Reserve Bank takes puts uh, twenty seven takes twenty five basis points away from the interest rate, so that they can stimulate the economy by us all having more money in our pocket after we pay our mortgage. And on the other hand, the banks go and say, "No, no, but we're going to take that back." In fact, they took back more. In some cases, a lot more. So, and it just doesn't make sense to me. So, I don't really understand why nobody gets up and talks about this. Terry McCran actually had a crack at it. I mean, he's only I think he's the only guy who's really had a crack. Um, I, I saw on the front page of Finn last week, they had a bit of a go at it too, something, they had a bit of a go at what Westpac was doing because Westpac put it up a, across the whole board. Not only that, Westpac said, not only investors, we're going to charge owner-occupiers as well. And the reason for it is because uh, they, they said they weren't able to discern within their total book who's, owner, who's an owner-occupier and who's an investor. So they said the reason we're going to hit everyone with it because we just can't really work out who's, who's who in the zoo. Um, Nobody's really sort of taken anyone to task. I don't know if that's because we're all too scared of the big banks or the, certainly the government said, haven't said a word about it. Uh, the RBA hasn't said anything about it. Regu- uh, the uh, C hasn't said anything about it. One or two newspapers have said something about it. I haven't seen a word on television about it. I don't know. I just don't understand how come banks can get away with this sort of stuff. I remember in the days when Wiz and Aussie were around, you'd never get, the bank would never get away with this. This would be front line for a month. In fact, the, in fact, in those days, Peter Costello would be all over it. <clears throat> Peter Costello would be talking about it in Parliament. He'd be pulling their pants down and taking them to task. And in fact, John Howard would be doing the same thing. John Howard would be all over the banks for this and they'd be too scared to do it without even getting the, the, the consent of those guys. I'll guarantee no, one's been to, no, no bank has gone to go and see uh, hockey on this. I'll bet you they've just gone and done it unilaterally. And it's totally unilaterally because they have not asked... Lenders, borrowers, what they think either. Now, if this continues on, if we get another gouge in six months' time, another gouge, what does that mean? We're going to pay another percent higher than what the Reserve Bank would like it to be? It seems like things are disassociated at the moment and uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a disconnect and that who's running this country? Who's running this economy? Who's actually in control of the interest rate lever? Is it the Reserve Bank or, are the, or is it the balance sheets? The big balance sheets, are they in control of the interest rates, which, by the way, drive this economy one way or the other, up or down? be interesting to see what happens in the next period. What's on my mind? Okay, what's been on my mind? We have this concept of passion. I mean, I, I, I did the uh, Telstra Small Business Awards or Business Awards. I was the keynote speaker, I think, two or three years ago. Um, Great event, fantastic event. I mean, I have to say, Telstra has invested, I think it's their 20, well, then it was their 20th year or 21st year, and they've invested like $20 million in this, uh, like a million dollars a year in running these awards, and they're very polished. I don't know what they used to be like 20 years ago, but they're very polished today and really good, really good events to attend. And um, one of the things that kept coming out about all the nominees and, <clears throat> excuse me, and the, not only nominees, but the winners and the, in their speeches I'm talking about, is this 
these words passionate and uh, this person's passion. I'm very passionate about my business, blah, blah, blah. And we keep hearing these words passion, 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 passion. And there's a lot of discussion around the importance of passion. Um, so but bear in mind who is your audience. If you're going to talk about how passionate you are, because you know, everyone who's in business is passionate about their business, but if you're going to talk about it, display it, then there are two audiences who are looking two types of audiences who are potential investors in your business who are looking at your passion and rate it differently. So investors, like your typical um, venture capital investor, gets sometimes a little bit wary about passion because sometimes the passion can overcome the what they call the preparedness, the ability to actually perform and execute and that's really what they're looking for. I think they're interested in passion in the beginning. Like they want you to love what you do and understand it and be passionate about it because there's no point walking and saying, well, you know, I'm not all that interested in my business. You've got to go and say, yeah, I'm interested in the business. I mean, I love it. I, I love this stuff. I do it for a living. I eat, breathe and sleep this, whatever it might be. But don't overrate, don't overrate that stuff from, from an investor's point of view. They don't overrate it. They're more interested in how prepared you are and do you have the ability, based on your preparation, the ability to execute? So there's a big difference between people that I've noticed around the place who have these great ideas and sort of tapping away on computers and doing more research and building up their research and talk to all their friends about it and say, oh, this great idea, but they actually never execute. They never actually produce anything um, because they are either not prepared properly, they haven't built business plans, they don't actually know that uh, they haven't put committed to writing their marketplace. They haven't worked out their pricing strategies. They're not. They don't know the relativity between their pricing and everyone else's. Uh, everyone else's pricing. They don't know the the price points, the sensitivity to price points. What they haven't done research as to what consumers really want in terms of pricing. They don't know the ingredients that uh, that need to be put into the product. And is it you know in other words, should you unwrap the product, unpackage the product, and just sell the consumer the Bare essentials are what they need. For example, in home loans, we have a product called the Rate Smasher. Now, what we've done is we actually unpackaged a home loan and we took out all those features that people don't put any emphasis on, but you get charged for because, you know, they're features in a loan that have to be managed. We stripped them out and we actually come up with this really low interest rate of 4.07. So, and, and the reason we're able to do that is because we pulled it apart. We um, disassembled it. And then we reassembled it and left out the things that, that you don't need in there. It's like buying a really basic car. You put petrol in it, drives from here to there, doesn't break down, always works. But you don't get fancy air conditioning, you don't get fancy radio, you don't get fancy leather seats, you don't have carpet on the floor. <clears throat> now, some people want that. So my, my point here is these, this is your ability to execute, knowing your product, knowing the market and how it likes the product, knowing how to price the market, these are things that are called preparedness. There's a lot written about it. Harvard, the Harvard Business Review, <coughs> the Harvard Business Review writes about this sort of stuff. And uh, researchers, researchers' analysis, uh, in fact, show that entrepreneurs' passion played no role in project fates. It was preparedness that enabled certain ventures to fly. Now it's funny, you know. Like I often talk about the questions that Kerry Packer asked me. The first thing he asked me was the question about have you ever failed? And really the second question he asked me, I should say, and the, the reason behind that, he said to me, son, lots of people are very passionate about their project. The question is are, do they have the, the toughness to actually execute? Because, you know, passion is like a, 
a momentary thing. It's, it exists here and now. But something will change down the track. And you've got to be prepared for the changes because the assumptions you make in relation to what you're passionate about are just assumptions. Assumptions about global economies, assumptions about your own marketplace, assumptions about the local economy, assumptions about you know whether you're priced properly. But always you're trying to make corrections in your business. So you've got to be prepared for sharp changes and you've got to be able to do that really quickly and go with the market because you can't tell the market what to do. The market will always tell you what to do. market's always right. market's perfect. You're not perfect. You're just a player in the – you're an imperfect person in a perfect market. And so the perfection of the market will always tell you what you should do. And preparedness is the thing that allows you to survive in those environments. So this concept of – Passion versus preparedness, a very important thing for you to consider if you're an entrepreneur or a business person at the moment. Um, don't overrate the first one. Don't underrate preparedness. Preparedness is something you're doing all the time. You're always backfilling with preparedness, always backfilling, backfill, backfill, backfill. Passion you need to have. It's an overlie. It just sort of sits over the whole environment. If you lose your passion, you don't want to do business anymore, get out of it and go and do something else. That's a, it's a necessary ingredient, passion, but it's not sufficient. Sufficiency comes from preparedness. Entrepreneurs Insight. Everyone has flat moments in their business life. So, right at the moment, I've been thinking about this a bit lately because I'm filming the Celebrity Apprentice. Um, I'm running two businesses. I'm doing a whole lot of stuff. Probably doing too much at the moment. It's only got another six weeks to go, which is fine. Um, so, <clears throat> people say to me, well, do you ever have flat moments where you just actually don't feel like going to work today and uh, or doing anything? You just feel like saying, stuff, I'm not doing this today. Ah, uh, yeah, all the time, all the time. Um, and in, particularly in times like now when I've got literally no time to myself and I'm running from thing to thing and, you know, I've never, I always under, or, you know, we underestimate, my EA and I underestimate the amount of time it's going to take me from get from this venue to another venue got to get changed, got to eat, I've got to have a shave, I've got to put a suit on because I'm doing the show or or I've got to take my suit off and put a track suit on, I left my gym gear, or whatever. I mean, there's all this stuff going on all the time. And uh, sometimes when I wake up in the morning and look at my door, I think, my God, I, got to, I can't believe today. And I might not be feeling great, for example, like last week. And so what do I do? Do I put stuff off? Do I procrastinate? This whole concept of procrastination, um, you know, how often does, do, does it confront you? So it is quite a confronting thing, procrastination. And um, there's a lady called Heidi Grant Halverson from Columbia uh, uh, University Business School. And again, this is something that comes out of the Harvard Business Review. Um, And she puts procrastination into three categories. Um, The first reason she says people procrastinate is because you're screwing, you're, you put it off, put off doing it because you're worried you're going to screw it up, in other words, sort of fear of failure. Um, now, fear of failure can work one way or the other way. Fear of failure can actually make you run away from something and not do something. But the way around that, and she sort of addresses this, but the way around that is actually use fear of failure as a motivation to do something. So... You know, if, you're fear, if you fear you're going to fail in something, we're well, definitely going to fail if you don't do something about it because you'll fail because you didn't do something about it in the first place. You're better off having a crack at it and not, and not succeeding the first time and maybe getting a chance to do it a second time than you are putting it off altogether and, not, and just totally procrastinating. 
because that is a failure, in my, my opinion. You have failed. You failed yourself. So if you're worried about your boss looking at you saying, oh, well, he or she did not do that job that I was expecting of them, and if you think that's how your boss is thinking, and if you do nothing about it, I tell you what, the boss is going to be more pissed off with you if you haven't even had a crack. You're better off having a, uh, having a go at it and trying to achieve the outcome that the boss is looking for than you are not having a go at all. Now, whether or not you actually achieve the outcome the boss is expected and at the boss's standards depends on how you go about it, how you do the job, how you actually execute. And, and sometimes the boss will be disappointed in you because, to be frank with you, you know, maybe you're not as good as you thought you were or the boss needs to know you're not as good as he thinks you were, in which case you might need to do some other role in the business. Or equally, you might do it so bloody well that the boss thinks, Jesus, this person's fantastic, I'm going to elevate them. It's all about uh, disclosing yourself to your environment. But I tell you one thing is for sure, not doing anything at all doesn't do anything other than put you in a category, this person's a all show, no go. And nothing worse than that. Bosses can't stand that and you get nowhere with people like that. So that's the first one, the uh, uh, procrastination based on fear of failure or fear that you're going to screw it up. The second one is I just don't feel like doing it. Sort of the lazy syndrome, what I call the lazy syndrome. Yeah, I can't be bothered doing that today. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that today. Not fear of failure. Just don't do things, you know. Habitual, you know, neurologically your 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 reward system has been um the negative reward system has been um if I do if I go and do things I get tired or I I don't get to enjoy myself today or I don't get enough personal uh benefit out of it. So, you know, you're, neurologically you're being rewarded by just putting things off and saying, I don't feel like doing that today. Well, that's that's a disaster in business anyway. That's a total disaster if you think that's going to work. <clears throat> Halverson says that in these sorts of situations, you just put that aside and just bloody get on with it. I mean, I, I just think there's that form of procrastination until you break that neurological cycle that sort of negative reward system that you've been building up, you know, all your life, until you break it and can keep breaking and keep breaking and keep breaking and actually re-engineer your thought processes, actually re-engineer your wiring, um, you're never going to achieve anything. So you've got to actually stop that process, that thinking process, and re-engineer your thinking process and just get on with it. Start it. Do it. You can't, you can't just exist... If you want to exist, I'll put it another way, if you want to exist successfully in a business environment, you've got to re-engineer your thinking processes. In other words, you've got to get into your own brain and change the way you think. And you've got to be prepared to do that. If you're not prepared to do that, then you might as well just give up because there's not going to, nothing's going to happen. You're just going to keep putting things off because I don't feel like it. You know, most people have those periods where they don't feel like I get it too. But I make sure that I go and do something. I just say, okay, forget about that. Just go and do it. Get it over and done with. Get it done. Just get it done. Just go about your business and get the thing done. Then you can go off and reward yourself with some sort of, uh, you know, a cup of coffee or a break or whatever it is you're after. But don't just put off because you don't feel like it. And the third reason, because it's hard, boring, or you put it off because it's hard, boring, or otherwise unpleasant. It's an unpleasant task. Well, in these situations, if it's boring, could be boring. Most a lot of tasks are boring, you know, or punishing. You just don't feel like it. you just say, oh, "Man, I don't want to have that meeting today. I don't want to have that discussion. I don't want to meet this person." But you've got to be robotic. 
So set your day up. There's your calendar. You're going to meet so-and-so at a particular time and talk about something you don't want to talk about. It's in your calendar. You just do what the calendar says. So it's like a process. You don't challenge the calendar. The calendar tells you what to do. That's why my case is better than someone else fills my calendar out. So I have to do things because they're in my calendar. That's the way I look at it. It's in my calendar. That's what I'm doing. I don't set my own calendar up. I get someone else to do it for me. And that, and that someone is totally uh, dispassionate about who I meet, who I don't meet. Couldn't care less. Her role is just to make sure I get through all the meetings and all the things I've got to do. She presents the calendar and I just robotically go through it. So I set time limits. That's what I'm doing at two. That's what I'm doing at three. That's what I'm doing at four. That's what I'm doing at one. That's what I'm doing at 12. And then you can reward yourself. You can say to your EA or whoever it is, yourself, if you run your own calendar, okay, but, you know, between one and two, I'm going to have a break. Or between two and 12 and two, I'm going to have a break. I'm going for a run, then I'm going to have my lunch or I'm going to have a sleep, whatever. But every other part of the day, you have to have these things, pleasant and or unpleasant, set down in your calendar and just do them. That's it. Get through it. Set yourself goals. Set out a calendar and let the calendar determine what you do and you don't do. That way, whether it's hard, boring or otherwise, unpleasant, it's irrelevant. It's all get mixed up with everything and you're just doing it and you just roll into it and you roll out of it. Ask Mark. Tweet Mark with your questions at Mark Boris. M-A-R-K-B-O-U-R-I-S. Mark, you've been receiving loads of questions via Twitter and on the email at um, mb at markboris.com.au. This is one that I think is really important. This person has an idea. They say that their family and friends think it's fantastic. But how do they go out there and get market research? How do they test the market? Well, that depends on your budget and your capital. But, I mean, the best way to get market research is to get done in Bradstreet's or Roy Morgan or somebody to go and do the research for you and you just set the parameters. Um, a lot of people like to do... Uh, um, um, their market research through advertising organisations who go and do uh, focus groups. But these things cost money You got to, and the focus group's got to be run by people with professional focus group running. Um, it's, it's, look, you can go and talk to your family, your friends, but, you know, to be honest with you, they're your cheer squad and they're all going to buff you anyway because you know, pe- those people don't want to disappoint you. Um, that's okay. It's, that's cool. You know, some will probably give you some constructive ideas and it really depends on how big your family, your friend, your friend group is. Um, <clears throat> you, but you need to have good research and if you're particularly if you're taking on a global brand or something like that you know they, they do massive they're doing research all the time every day and recently my company Yellow Brick Road we did research we researched six and a half thousand respondents that's a lot of respondents and we want to know you know what are your hopes and dreams you know and in, in Australia Australians what are your hopes and dreams the, the, the one that came out to be the most important one was travel um, that closely followed by owning my first home. Others the after which after which was pay my mortgage off. But six and a half thousand is a pretty big base of people. Now we you know we have access to the internet and all these various tools, and we have hundreds of thousands of customers, so we can probably do that. Um, but that's good quality market research. So if you're going to do so, if you're going to make a proposition to somebody, it's in your pitch. Or you're talking to investors. If it's Sheilion, if it's Salome uh, Borg the, the other day with her. Um, uh, pay band. Pay band. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the first question I ask them is what sort of market research you've done. Now, you know, they've all done the sort of anecdotal stuff. Market research needs to be scientifically based because what you're doing is you're taking a sample of people, you're asking them a number of relevant questions. So they have to be relevant questions, not just questions you would expect you know the answer to, but relevant questions that affect 
what people will pay, why they want a product, what the features are looking for, and what, where do they access that product from. You have to actually have good quality, scientifically based questions asked to the right market sample and that sample has to be calculated as a representative of the total marketplace that you're going to, whether it's local, domestic, I should say, or global. Best way is to start off with domestic. So now if you – it's not enough just to ask 25 people. That's, that might be all you can do, but, you know, to be frank, no investor is ever going to rely on that. Um, you need to have proper evaluations. And then once you get the market research, you've got to interpret it. Again, it's good to get independent people to interpret the market research for you. You know, and it's maybe it's your accountant, maybe it's an accounting firm. Accounting firms do market research as well. Or maybe someone's already done market research who actually particularly suits your particular product that you're asking, that you're, that you're thinking about promoting and or offering. But market research is incredibly important. Um, I, Nick was saying earlier that, um, you know, that's why these village concepts where you go into a village that, say, like the one that NAB's um, are building down there in Victoria, you've got a lot of like-minded people. You ha- at least have an opportunity to talk to everyone down there about what you're doing. Now, the, this, but I, I caution that, again, is anecdotal market research. It's not actual market research. So if you want to say you have spoken to all these people, that's anecdotal. Make sure then you can actually say, well, these are the 20 questions I asked or whatever. And these are the sorts of responses I'm getting. Write them down. And this is how I interpret the responses. And off the back of that interpretation, I build a pricing and a feature map for the product. And I build a, a heat map of as to where these people live. Well, this is how I get to them. And then, and that's, that same principle is what you do if you actually do real market research. And if you're going to do real market research, you've got to get it done by someone who's reputable who are persuasive and authoritative in that area because otherwise if you're spending money, it's a waste. And so, you know, all of you, a lot of you are listening and saying, no, yeah, but I'm an entrepreneur I've got no capital. Yeah, but I think that capital is, any capital you can get is best directed in the early stages about getting market research because, you know, you might find out nobody wants you, actually wants your product. And that's a pretty good thing to find out early on before you waste $1. Can I just add something here, Mark? Just going right back to, um, you know, the problem with family and friends always going, oh, yeah, it's great, and being really supportive and not necessarily giving an honest opinion. Something I've tried recently, particularly with colleagues as well, is getting an honest answer out of people by not saying it's your idea or not saying it's your product. Like, oh, I've discovered this great little business that I think's good. You know, I've heard about this thing. What do you think? You know, and then you go, you get the family going, oh, yeah, it's a bit crap. Or it's good. And you go, oh, okay, cool. Well, back to the drawing board. <laughs> well, you've got to be careful that on 2J because, to be frank with you, it's the question you ask and mm. you've got a lot of people like to put shit on everything, yeah. no matter what it is. If it's, not your, if it's, if it's your idea, they'll, they'll, still know, they'll love you up. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> if it's, a lot of people just aren't qualified to give an opinion. Yeah. So the, uh, the question comes down to whether you want to take, add any value to what they've just said. Mm. The question comes down to what was the question. You know, like, oh, what do you think of this product? I mean, well, you, you should say, well, really what you're asking the consumer, the person you're talking to is, you know, do, do you have a need for this, this and this? Yeah. And if a product was out there that could do that, that and that, what, what do you think of that? Instead yeah. of just presenting the product or the idea, just you, what you need to find is what the needs of the consumer are in the first place. I mean, do you always have a problem with finding your car key? Or do you always lose your mobile phone? People might just go, no. 
if they say no, that's the end of the section. But let's say that, yeah, yeah, I do. Well, then you find two or three say, yeah, yeah, I do. Mm. And do you find that you lose it between the hours of six and seven in the morning or and is it on the way to the gym or and then build it up and then say, okay, do you know there's a solution out there in the marketplace for this? I found this the other day, there's a solution. And the solution is this, whatever it is, a tag. Yeah. And then see the reaction. But actually what you build up is a whole lot of information on the way through so that you can actually work out whether they're just being bloody-minded. Because if you present them the solution, they say, I don't need that. Yeah. What you've got to tell them is they have a problem first yeah. and identify do they have a problem and is the problem a, a common denominator and then do they all think that that's the solution. And we do that with home loans, interest rates, financial products. We actually ask what are the problems you have. I mean, in terms of uh, we had this product called Guru. <clears throat> we asked people, you know, what do you know about your retirement? Where do you rank retirement? Is it important for you? Is it important at all? Before we launch a, a, a retirement product, is, is retirement important? And where does it rank? First, second, third, fourth, tenth? In Victoria, it actually ranks quite lowly, funnily enough, retirement. Queensland ranks very highly. It's number two. So these are all <clears> questions <throat> that you'd ask even before you've even developed the product, like right at the start to decide even if there's a need for that product in the market. You might have the idea, yeah. but you certainly don't develop product until you do your research. Do you the research? Looking forward, this is the week ahead. Mark, the week ahead, one of those key economic indicators, unemployment rate is out later today, which we know that the RBA will be looking at. And next Tuesday, the NAB Business Confidence Survey is out. I'd love to get Alan Oster in here to talk to him about it at some stage. Um, and the unemployment, I don't, I don't expect anything out of the unemployment number. I think it's going to be around about where it was last time. So I, I don't expect anything uh, too um, dramatic from that. But then again, we might get something dramatic, but uh, I don't expect it at all. And I don't think the business confidence will change from last time around. <coughs> Excuse me. It'd be interesting to see whether or not um, the, the so-called business budget is still propping up the business confidence because that was a June 30-based budget, what you spent before June 30. Um, everyone went out madly and spent the 20 grand. Um, June 30's passed, and then we're in August. It'd be interesting to see whether people are back to where they were pre-budget. In other words, thinking, well, what a... What a shit sandwich everything is at the moment. We'll see. Um, <clears throat> what's, com- what's coming up? Coming up on the show, we do want to make sure that, as you said, people are sending in their YouTube pictures, but also if it's not something that you want to disclose, send it via email. Give us the details and we'll be able to review it anyway on the show. Also, Todd Sampson, Australia's leading advertising guru, he has come up with this incredible TV show about how to retrain your brain and we're going to have Todd on the show in the next couple of weeks and talk to him about what he discovered about the brain. Which is sort of what I was talking about before, about procrastination. Retrain your brain, if, if, if they're the words, but uh, maybe that's something we could talk to Todd about, this process of procrastination, you know, this, this memory and this um, process of habit. What, how your brain forms your habits and the rewards you get out of it. And, uh, and when some people are continually depressed or continually sad. or con- They're actually comfortable with that because that's how their brain is wired. And to some extent, you, you can try and rewire your brain. I'm not saying there's a, it's a way out of depression, but uh, some people are chronically depressed and clinically depressed, but some people actually are uh, constantly sort of down on the mouth because that's what they're used to. Or they're used to drama in their life, or they're used to arguments. They can't, 
you know, arguments is what they're comfortable with. So they take the arguments out of the office and into the home. And, and that's interesting to see what Todd's got to say. But I talked to him about it last week about it. it was, he's an interesting guy, really talented. I look forward to that one. Okay, guys, that's a wrap. Thanks very much. See you later. This has been the Mark Boris Podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at Mark Boris. And find out more at markboris.com.au. Listener.